It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. You know, always surround yourself with people that are aspirational and people that you aspire to be like and people have qualities that you want to emulate. Instead of, if you surround yourself with people who aren't trying to strive to do anything, then you're going to end up trying to strive not to do anything. So try to be around people who are aspirational. Singer, songwriter, and record producer Tim McGraw needs little introduction to anyone who follows country music. But he's also an accomplished actor who's appeared or starred in a host of successful films, including Paramount's recent series, 1883. Married to fellow country star and actress Faith Hill, he sold more than 80 million records worldwide. He's also a family man, philanthropist, pilot, and a host of other rewarding and risky pursuits. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Speaking of adrenaline, we're delighted to have Zoa Energy as this episode's sponsor. We caught up with Tim to talk about being under the bright lights just as his 2022 tour is getting underway. So Tim, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. It's so great to hear your voice again and and to have the chance to catch up. You've been a busy man lately. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing. It's been pretty busy. You know, we Faith and I shot the, the TV series 1883 together, which was five or six months pretty much of just solid 14-hour-a-day, six-days-a-week work. And and, um, and it was good because it was lucky for us that it fell on a time because a lot of times these projects come along and I can't do them or she can't do them. And we've never done a project like that together other than touring, so we've never acted together or anything like that. But this all came along at a time where COVID was really raging and tours were canceled and it was just in a bad situation, it became a perfect opportunity for Faith and I to be able to work together and take on a project like this and be able to spend the time on it that it deserved and the time that it needed. And we had a just a fantastic experience in doing it. I mean, it was, like I said, we both grew up farming and driving cotton pickers and tractors and, and all those sorts of things. But this was probably the hardest work I've done in my life doing this show. And Faith will tell you the same thing. It, it wasn't easy lifting. It was a lot of time in the sun. It was either burning hot or freezing cold. We maybe had maybe five days that were comfortable throughout the whole thing because we're out in the elements the whole time and, and on horseback the whole time. So it was pretty brutal, but it was fun at the same time and very rewarding. Tim, we always start by asking our guests where they came from and what shaped their willingness to take risk. You grew up in Louisiana and your childhood wasn't always easy. How did your early experiences affect your approach to your art? Well, my mom, my dad, who I didn't know is a long story. It can get very drawn out. But my biological father was a professional baseball player. And my mother lived in Florida when she was in high school. And my dad was playing minor league baseball in Jacksonville, Florida. And they met and dated throughout a summer. And she ended up getting pregnant. So she could, couldn't finish her high school senior year out. And the family sort of shipped her off to all the, the old family back in Louisiana. So she went to Louisiana, back home to the country and with all the cousins and relatives and ended up having me there. And my first year, she got married when I was a little over a year old or remarried. She never got married before. But my youngest, I, I don't remember this, but she loves to tell the story in Rayville, Louisiana, that she was 
working as a waitress at a bus stop and had a playpen set up for me right by the jukebox. So I would, for my first year of life, I'm in a playpen right by a jukebox in a, in a bus station in Rayville, Louisiana. Started off pretty early and um, she married my stepdad, who I thought was my dad. Till later on down the road, after they got divorced around 11 years old, I found my birth certificate. And that's how I found out that who my real biological father was. But, and it was a pretty dysfunctional family that we grew up in. You know, my stepdad was, he's one of these guys, which makes it even worse. He's one of these guys who could be the nicest guy in the room and the big, loud, boisterous, fun guy in the room. But he can also be a raging alcoholic that just beats the whole family up. So it makes you unbalanced in a lot of ways trying to figure your life out. So I've probably retreated into music because of that quite a bit too. Some good things that came out of it was I got two great sisters out of that relationship and that marriage with my mom and we're best friends and we're closest sisters and brothers can be. And he had me riding a horse by the time I was two years old. So that set me up for down the line on 1883. So I had ridden horses my whole life, rode high school rodeo. So I was very familiar with horses and being around horses my whole life. And he also, he was a truck driver, cowboy kind of guy, farmer. I used to ride in the 18-wheeler with him at around four or five years old, hauling cottonseed across the Louisiana and Texas, and he loved country music. So I would listen to just eight track after eight track after eight track of, of Merle Haggard and George Jones and Charlie Pride and Charlie Rich and all those guys. I remember knowing all those songs at four or five years old, and I could sing along with every song he was playing on the eight track. So out of the bad comes good sometimes. So you are absorbed in country music since birth, practically. Absolutely, yeah. That's a great background for understanding country music and getting it into your DNA. But I'm not sure if there's really a conventional path into country music stardom. But if there is, you probably weren't on it. Uh, <laughs> you dropped out of college to get into it. You hadn't even been playing guitar that long when you started. What caused you to be willing to take that kind of risk? And how did you first break in? It was a big chance, you know. I And plus, you know, when you think about anyone who becomes great or professional at anything, in the arts, whether as an astronaut or as an admiral or whatever it becomes, it's hard to picture that person not studying from the time that they were old enough to even walk. That's their primary singular focus in life. And that's what you always think. So you never think that, oh, I can just decide to go do this and just go do it. It just seems like that's a pipe dream. But I was an athlete growing up. So I, you know, I love music and I always sang, but I never played anything or sang at people's weddings and stuff like that. But I was a shortstop. I was a wide receiver. I was a point guard on the basketball team. So athletics were everything to me. And luckily for me, and I had some scholarships from athletics going out of college, but I wasn't three inches taller because had I been about 6'3", I probably would have chased athletics and probably played like double A ball till I was about 30 and then been looking for a job. So, so it was a pretty good, God gave me, the disadvantage I thought he gave me was advantage not to do the wrong thing probably. But no, I was in college. I graduated second in my class in high school. I wanted to be a lawyer. That was my whole goal in life. And started out in college, joined a fraternity. And as soon as I joined a fraternity, started playing guitar. Grades started going downhill quite a bit. And it was about three years into college. And, you know, I remember specifically, I took a military science class. And all the guys in the military science class were ROTC guys. And so we did all these drills and did all this field work and uh, combat plans and all those sort of things as they have you do in those classes. And at the end of the class, the whole class voted on who was the field leader in the class. And oddly enough, the only ROTC guy in there that had nothing to do with the military was got me, got voted as the field commander or whatever you call it for the, for the class. So the military science teacher, Captain Whitehead, took a big interest in me. 
and he wanted me to go to the Marine Corps. He thought I'd make a good Marine. So he took me, kept taking me to the recruiting office and taking me to the recruiting office. So it came down to the point I ended up selling everything I had. I sold my little car I had. I sold my water skis. I sold my shotguns. I sold everything that I had. And then I had to get the nerve to call my mom. Now, I didn't know which decision I was going to make. I had filled out all of my Marine Corps paperwork and I had my guitar had everything sold and I called my mom and it took me a while to get around to telling her because I thought for sure she was going to light into me because all she ever wanted me to do was succeed and she knew I wanted to be a lawyer since the time I saw a movie Injustice for All with Al Pacino and that made me want to be a lawyer when I was like 13 years old so that's all I ever wanted to do and she really pushed hard to, for me to graduate and, and go on and do that and I called her and I didn't tell her about the Marine Corps papers because I knew that would freak her out more than anything else so having Marine Corps papers sitting there having a guitar sitting there I called my mom and says drop out of college and get on the Greyhound bus and go to Nashville. And there was silence on the phone for a second. And I was expecting the right hook over the phone. But instead, she told me, she says, well, I'm surprised you haven't done it already. And if you don't do it, you'll always wonder and you'll always guess. So you have my full blessing. What a great mom. Yeah. Follow your dreams. Absolutely. So what made you pick country Western, I mean, just music and going to Nashville, what was driving you? Just had this internal desire? It was been building up over the years or was it a lightning bolt out of the blue or how did that happen? It started building up. My first summer of college, I went to a pawn shop and I actually pawned my high school ring, my graduation ring, and bought a $25 guitar. And I spent the summer learning 50 songs. And then I started playing for tips at a local restaurant with these 50 songs that I'd learned. I'd play them over and over and over every night for six days a week. I'd play these 50 songs that I knew. And then slowly but surely, I started adding songs to it and learning more and more. And then I started putting a band together and started playing clubs. But first and foremost, I figured out that it did really well with the ladies. When I had a guitar in my hand and was playing music, especially, you know, after a frat party sitting on the steps playing oh, yeah, some songs. Yeah, it was, yeah. I'm like, this is pretty good. I kind of <laughs> like this. So at that age and that time in my life probably motivated me more than anything else. Yeah. But, I think I heard Billy Joel say the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it worked. Yeah. So it's no surprise, Tim, that as a young artist, your first album didn't enjoy that much success. But, you know, what kept you going? Because your next one, not a moment too soon, right, right. really took off. Yeah, the first one I always like to say went wood <laughs> instead of gold or platinum or anything like that. I think we had like one top 40 song and one went to like 42. But it was just enough to give me some a little more gigs and a little better gigs. But I still had a van, just pulling a trailer and we were playing thousand seat clubs all over the country. But really what happened, I think, was that the record label I was with, and since the songs didn't have that much success and the album didn't have that much success, the label that I was with sort of ignored me and didn't, they sort of forgot about me, I think, in a lot of ways, which was in actuality a blessing because I spent the next year or so just cultivating these friendships with songwriters that I had known and songwriters who were trying to come up at the same time that I was and was trying to even get writing deals, not even necessarily an artist deal, just trying to write songs that somebody would notice. So I just started cultivating and curating all of these songs from all these guys and started putting just a, a group of songs together and didn't play them for my man management, didn't let the label I know I was doing it. And my producer, who's still my producer to this day, Byron Gallimore, in fact, I was that's why I'm a little hoarse. I was in the studio with him last night. We're working on a new album. I, I brought him the songs and I said, let's just book studio time and go in and cut and not just not tell anybody. 
everybody because, I, you know, I think if we'd have told the label we were going to go cut, they would have probably said no, no. And I didn't want anybody to hear the songs because to me, songs are everything. I think singers are dime a dozen. The songs are the most important thing that you have. And I'm very particular about the songs that, that I want to cut. And sometimes the songs that I like may not be what mainstream sort of people in the business might think are the best songs. So I get very protective of my songs when I'm going into cut. So I didn't play them for anyone and went in and we recorded an album and it was not a moment too soon and it worked. You know, that leads into a question I really wanted to ask you in this. And maybe it's a quick answer. I don't know. But how do you know when a song's going to work? And how do you know when you just got to kind of move on? Oh, well, that's a tough question. That's the $64,000 question, I guess, is whether I'm writing it or whether I'm hearing it from other songwriters. You kind of feel like when you know when something's good. To me, it has to viscerally move me. It just has to really make me feel something. And if it doesn't do that, then right off off the bat, it it doesn't work. And and sometimes it's the lyric that makes it work for me. Sometimes it's the melody that is more powerful than the lyric, or it just depends on on the song. And, And then sometimes they surprise you. You get, you might go in the studio, if you're making an album that maybe has 12 songs on it you'll go in the studio and you'll probably take in 20 25 songs that you've curated over that at this point a couple of years time you've accumulated these songs and you you know you start out with i listen to thousands and thousands of songs and you are now right probably 50 or so for each project and i'm very i'm harder on my songs than i am anybody else's so i rarely record any of my songs but um you go through the list and, and what you do is you find your favorite song and that becomes your marker and you start building around that until you find your next favorite song and that becomes your marker and then it starts knocking others off and you start building around that so the circle gets tighter and tighter and tighter and then you go on you like i say 20 or 30 songs in the studio they think are really good songs and you start recording them and sometimes you get in and start working with them and they just don't work and then sometimes one of the songs that you think is way down the list you start working on it all of a sudden it just sort of rises to the top once you get in it starts to come alive and you start feeling the band starts feeling it I think it's the main part is just getting it curated down enough to where you have that group of good songs So where do you get your inspiration for your songwriting? I'm not one of these guys, they do it all over everywhere. And they're great songwriters who do this. We're like, they'll have three scheduled appointments a day with different songwriters. And it's all right, we're meeting at 10 and we're going to write a song. And then I have another appointment at two and we're going to write a song. And then I have another appointment at four and we're going to write a song. And they, so they, sort of the way the system works here, I can't operate that way. I, I mean, I might go a year without writing anything. Or I might write a phrase down here or there. Or I might write a phrase down. If I'm out spearfishing or something, I'll come up with an idea or say it into my phone when I get back home. Or if I'm in the middle of the night, have an idea and say it. And sometimes it's a collection of these phrases or these little moments that I've written down somewhere. And you come back and you have like all these sort of post-it notes, so to speak. And you sort of put them all together and you start forming a song that way. And then sometimes I just get an idea and I can sit down and in five minutes write something out that works. Is there an aspect of songwriting that sort of puts, it's like an emotional risk, right? You're putting yourself out there and being a little bit vulnerable. Well, just, you know, listen to Humble and Kind and Live Like You Were Dying. Those songs had to have a lot of emotional risk. Yeah, sometimes it is, you know, it's like you're opening the door a little too much sometimes. And even if it's not your song, if it's another songwriter's song, like those two are, it's still, you know, you're just like, who do I really want to sort of expose my emotions in this way? But it's a risk that you learn to understand that that's where the magic is in what you do. And without that, with if you don't do that, I always say you can sing a song to people, you can sing a song at people, but if you can sing a song, people hear what they wanted to say and they couldn't say it then you've got something like
If you want somebody to just sort of go look at the radio and go, how did he know? That's what I've been trying to say forever. And I, he did it in three minutes. And it's one, if you find a song that a husband hears and he wants to go play it for his wife, he says, look, I, I've never known how to tell you this. Just listen to this song. That's the beauty of it. Wow. So Tim, we're going to get into a little bit of film in a second, but I have to ask you about touring. You're about to go back out on tour. What motivated you? And tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Well, yeah, we start touring at the end of April. I've done a few shows between, I had a couple of shows while we were filming 1883, but I've done a couple since the first of the year, not really tours, just like little festivals and stuff. But a tour proper where we're putting together a production in our stage and everything comes toward the end of April, we start touring. I miss it. The, the last couple of years, I've done just a handful because of the pandemic. I hadn't been out and hadn't done many shows. There's something about that instant gratification when you're on stage and that energy. There's no energy that I've ever felt like that. I mean, I, I'm not sure that it can equate to sitting on top of a rocket or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> but it's the closest I'm going to come to that. It's just such an energy, and especially on the nights when you sort of create the symbiotic relationship with, with the fans where you all realize that you're, for these two hours, you're just sort of signing this invisible contract that you're letting the world go for a while. We're all jumping in this stream together, and we're going to live in this moment. And, and that's what this is all about. It's about sort of forgetting about your worries and forgetting about the problems in the world, forgetting about anything else. And we're just going to sit here and enjoy ourselves and get lost in the music. And when you have those nights that are magic, I mean, not all of them are, but boy, when you get one of those, it just keeps you pumping for the next one. So that's what helps you keep going. A pretty grueling tour schedule is having those magical nights. And so it gives you energy instead of taking energy. Absolutely. And like I said, you don't always have them. Knock on wood, we've been lucky we've had more than not. When you hit them, those nights, they'll keep you going for a long time. So let's talk about the other nights. Uh, Tim, you know, I was privileged to interrupt one of your concerts, as you remember, <laughs> in Dallas by presenting a surprise video thanking you for supporting our troops. I was a little worried that you wouldn't remember who I was or it would throw you off your rhythm. But I guess at this point in your career, you can adjust to something like that pretty quickly. So how do you handle it when something, whether it's technical glitch or something else, something goes wrong when you're in this rhythm of being in the middle of a concert? Yeah, it can throw you off, um, especially if your microphone works. You can just start talking to the audience a little bit or play, have, you know, I'll have my acoustic player come out and just we'll do a couple acoustic songs or something like Sometimes there's just nothing you can do and things just go down and you just have to wait a bit and sort of have walk out and tell the audience, look, give us five minutes, we'll be back. And, you know, and then sometimes somebody runs on the stage or, you know, have all those kinds of things. And you, you try to turn it into a positive anytime something like that happens. And of course, I've had things that have happened on stage that weren't so positive, but you still try to turn them around and try to understand and figure out and analyze what happened and try to figure out how not to let it happen again. You know there's a light that glows by the front door Don't forget the keys under the mat After this short break, we'll talk to Tim about the risks associated with his acting career. You're in the Adrenaline Zone. What if you could get energy, immunity, and strength in one sip? Well, now you can. Zoa is the fastest-growing energy drink on the market, created by Dwayne The Rock Johnson to fuel risk-takers and world-changers like you. Zoa is packed with superfoods like Kamu Kamu and Acerola cherries that provide multiple B vitamins and 100% vitamin C. Plus, Zoa has just the right kick of caffeine from green tea and green coffee in five amazing flavors. Look for it on Amazon, at your favorite retailer, or order online at zoaenergy.com. That's Z-O-A-Energy.com. 
we're going to move on to your acting career, but before getting there, I guess one of the things I noticed is the three of us have in common is our love of flying. So how did you get into that adrenaline-producing activity? I I love it. I haven't done it in a while. In fact, a tornado came through Nashville two years ago and tore my hangar up and tore my plane up. So I've only flown a little bit since then. So I got to get a new plane. But I'm on. So I fly a Cirrus SR22, but kind of want to step up to the Cirrus Vision Jet now. That's my next goal. So yeah, I'm going to use that a lot for touring this year with my flight instructor. So I guess a lot of time and time in on that. You know, it was, I'll be 55 in a month. So I guess I was around 42, 43, somewhere around there. And it was a time of my life. I probably I let myself get out of hand a little bit in a lot of ways and sort of shut all of that stuff off. And I needed something to sort of pour my energy into and my thoughts into and something that kept me from getting sort of antsy and off track. And so I always wanted to fly. So I just dove right into it. And I spent a couple of months, just eight hours a day, every day, fly just to dove into it completely. Sounds like how you learned how to play the guitar. (laughs) That's the way to do it, though. For sure. So, Tim, acting, did it come to you or did you go to it? How did that all come about? I always loved movies growing up. You know, I did a couple of plays, I guess, when I was in grade school and high school, but it wasn't really something that I ever pursued. And when I had some success in music, that stuff sort of comes out of the woodwork where people start start wanting to sort of just stunt cast you because you're a celebrity and thinking they might get some eyeballs on their film or and stuff like that. And so I had a lot of offers to do things, nothing that really, I really liked. And I sort of ignored it all because I figured that, you know, all right, I've got this success going and the worst thing that I can do is try to go do something else and be terrible at it and ruin what I've got going on over here. And the difference between acting and a musician, I guess, on stage is being a musician on stage is all about, you know, being cool. Everything's got to be cool. You want to be the cool guy up there with the guitar. Acting sometimes doesn't call for a cool guy. You don't want to take that persona away from your music career. Scripts were coming in. I was a good 10 years into my, 12 years into my career, something like that. I was down the road quite a bit. Uh, tw- 10 years, I guess. I had a couple of scripts sitting on my desk and I was a little bored one night and I grabbed the Friday Night Lights script and decided to read it and when I read it, it was just one of those, like we talk about when you find great songs, that visceral moment that you get, that visceral impact that you get from something. And that script and that guy and that character in that script hit me. It just hit me right in the chest. Like, I know that guy. I saw that guy at every ball game I was ever at. In fact, my stepdad was a little bit of that guy. I made some phone calls. Pete Berg, who directed it, didn't know who I was, never heard of me. So I couldn't get a meeting with him. So I finally tracked him down in LA to get even just to have a cup of coffee. And he he sort of blew me off. It's like, well, I've already given the part away. He'd actually given it away to a rock singer, who I'm not going to name, but he'd already given the part away. But I just wouldn't quit calling him. And he's just like, I don't think that I can do anything about this. And he says, I don't even know if you can act or whatever. So they were shot down in Austin. So they moved their whole headquarters down to Austin. They were getting really close to shooting. And I just called him one day. He changed his number as well because he changed to a production <laughs> number. So I tracked. Probably because you were calling him. Probably because I was calling him. <laughs> Who so is I, this guy? I tracked down his new number and I called him and said, look, I'm, I'm headed to the airport right now. I'm jumping on the airplane. I'll see you in two hours. And I hung up and didn't say anything. So I flew down and got in the car and, Walked right in his office and went, walked right into just started doing a scene. Oddly enough, the next day, Faith and I were flying to Paris to do a shoot a music video together. So we flew to Paris. We landed in Paris. Just as we're walking in the door, setting our suitcases down, the phone rings and I answer, and it's Billy Bob Thornton, who I hadn't met before. And I don't know how he tracked down me in Paris. And he said he just heard from Pete Berg. He said some country singer came in and did a great job on an audition. He says, I think you're going to get a call later this afternoon. Sure enough, later that afternoon, Pete Berg called me and he said, hey man, would you come do this movie with us? 
And that's how I got the part. So you decided to risk it because the part intrigued you. And so it sounds like acting came naturally then. Or did you have to do some classes or pick up some? No, I've never done any classes or anything like that. I mean, I think luckily for me, I think that guy, that part just felt like I connected with him so well that it just sort of brought out a naturalness that I didn't have to think about it too much. No, I was just saying you learn as you go. You know, one of your early, although as we just talked about, not your first acting roles was in The Blind Side, uh, where you were in a supporting role to Sandra Bullock, who won the Best Actress Oscar for that film. And it struck me that actors depend on each other a good bit. So that's pretty heady stuff. That early in your acting career, supporting somebody who ended up winning an Oscar. How did that work out? How did it feel to you? That was cool. She was one of the, the greatest people I've worked with. Learned so much from her. from her. She's such a professional, nice person, down to earth person. Everybody on that set was like that. And we knew that we, when we sat down the first day before we started shooting, we all got there about a week before we started shooting. And that film was actually nominated for an Oscar as well for Best Picture. When we sat down around the table and just did a read through of the script, we all felt like, okay, this feels like a real family. This feels like we got something special. We all clicked. We all hit it off well. We all enjoyed each other's company. And she, I always say, even with musicians, and but acting even more so, I think, to musicians. But And you guys know, and I always tell my kids, you know, always surround yourself with people that are aspirational and people that you aspire to be like and people have qualities that you want to emulate. Instead of, if you surround yourself with people who aren't trying to strive to do anything, then you're going to end up trying to strive not to do anything. So try to be around people who are aspirational. And I've been lucky enough with the acting roles that I've done, with the career that I've had, and me straight to my marriage to my wife being around people who inspire me and people who it's like playing tennis with somebody you know you play better when you play against somebody who's pretty good and when you put yourself in those situations with good people it's up to you to get better but you have the opportunity to if you take it wow so your latest acting gig 1883 a remarkable series so without giving anything away to someone who hasn't seen it yet which they should do in the last episode there's an incredibly emotional event that in- includes you playing James Dutton. I actually had a hard time sleeping after I watched it. With that in mind, I would imagine there's some elements of acting that involve much greater risk than others. If you pull it off, which you did, by the way, it's amazing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how you learned to handle that kind of risk associated with the more difficult aspects of acting? Yeah, I mean, the biggest part of acting, I think, is taking risk and taking chances. I mean, if you play it safe, A lot of the times it's not going to work out. You're doing it in front of people who are acting in front of Sam Elliott, who's a Hollywood movie legend. And you've got, it's such a a weird situation because you're trying to create these emotional real life moments and you've got 40 people standing around. People are on their phones. Some people are in the background talking. Some guys holding a microphone up over your head. So it's, it's the most unnatural of conditions to try to be natural in. But it comes down, and now, as I always do, I'm going to swing it back to songs. It comes down to the writing to me. And Taylor Sheridan, who wrote the, the script for 1883, just blew me away with the writing in it. And when you have something that's written that well, and then Isabel May, who played our daughter, and then working alongside my, my wife, Faith, who played my wife. I mean, when you have that caliber of talent around you, with that kind of writing, and we were out in the elements, and... We were cold and we were burning hot and we were uncomfortable. So all that stuff added to the authenticity of it as well. It wasn't hard to get emotional when you needed to because it was written so well. And having three daughters certainly gave me a perspective that I needed going into this role as well. 
And I think the energy between Faith and I being married, playing this parts together, made it special. And certainly it made it special because when she had, we had a scene where she slapped me. And there were a lot of hits and punches in the show <laughs> where, and where they're fake ones. You make it look like a real one, which you really miss. So Faith and I had the conversation that, well, you know, we're married and we want this to be authentic and real. So, like, I really want you to just haul off and hit. I don't want to fake it. <laughs> so she was like, all right, that's what we'll do. And she, I think she got pretty excited about it. So the first one she gave me, I was expecting this, you know, good slap. And I got a palm right on the cheek. I mean, a hard one. And it just about knocked me silly. And then she was like, okay, let's go again. So I think we had it in three takes, but we ended up doing 10 just because she wanted to keep going. <laughs> finally, yeah, fortunately, you had that said, do we need Yeah, so finally, finally I said, do we need to go have a talk or something? Is there, yeah, is there something I need to know about? <laughs> That's great. That's hilarious. So how do you get ready for the cameras to come on? What kind of prep work do you do? I mean, it sounds like being in the elements helped that aspect for 1883, but... Yeah, being in the elements helped. Not getting much sleep helped in that character because we were shooting long days and six days a week. And, you know, I'm sort of a nut about working out. So I would probably get three hours of sleep a night because I would get up at 2.33 in the morning so I could I'd get my gym time in before I'd have to be on set at 4.30 or 5. It was a lot of sleep. But my prep is I don't I read the script hundreds of times. I mean, I, I'll know the entire script, but I don't super study it the night before or anything like that because I pretty much know the script. But what I do is a lot is I get to set really early and then I just sort of walk in the world a while and um, sort of run the lines in my head and just put myself into the world. And it's usually right before it was before the sun came up every time we were on set. And, and so I'd be walking through the wagons or walking through the town we were working in, just sort of trying to put your headspace in that time and that place. As a reminder, this episode of The Adrenaline Zone is brought to you by Zoa Energy. Zoa is designed to support healthy immunity while providing a boost of energy and hydration. And you can always find out more on zoaenergy.com. Either you and Faith have incredible stunt doubles, or you spend a lot of time riding while filming 1883. And you mentioned that you started riding when you were two years old. Yeah. Some of those horseback scenes are pretty downright violent. I'd imagine the producers aren't exactly wild about getting one of their actors hurt. Was it natural for you, or how did you handle the risk associated with that kind of physical risk? It was very physical. I loved it. I mean, I, that was my favorite part of any of it, was being on horseback, and especially doing the, just wide-open riding, running the wild horses and chasing cows. I mean, that was my favorite part of it, the shootouts on the horseback. I mean, it was like being a kid play, you know, playing cowboy. It was great. I would say... Gosh, 95% of the riding we did. I mean, there was one or two times where there'd be a really long scene where we were had two crews going. So we were shooting an intimate scene somewhere else and they were doing a big, really wide scene or something that we'd have a stunt double do it. But it's hard for me to remember when I didn't ride. Just about everything was, was us riding. So having acted with Sandra Bullock and then acting with your wife, Faith, are there any extra risks associated with acting alongside your talented spouse? Are you guys your best critics or each other's best? Yeah, the risk of going home at night <laughs> is the extra risk. <laughs> no, we very supportive of each other. I mean, we certainly had our moments, especially if, you know, if I tried to direct it all. <laughs> that didn't work out too well, which I shouldn't be doing anyway. But no, it was great. And I tell you, the best part about it was on days when a scene was just particularly good. And you felt really good about it and, and sort of that euphoria that comes with doing something like that and the excitement of it, you know, having a day like that, much like having a great show, laying in bed at night and talking 
and just continually talking about it and being excited about it. Say, oh, do you remember when this happened? You remember when you did this? That was so cool when you did that. So being able to, to do to go home with your wife and your acting partner and sort of lay in bed and discuss that sort of thing and have that kind of conversation was pretty special. Do you think it made you guys better on the set that you could have that kind of post-filming debrief at that level? Absolutely. Look, there you probably could have picked 100 actors that could have done a great job on that. But um, I think that us being married, and we've been married 25 years now, so being married for 25 years, having three daughters, we're homebodies anyway, so we spend all of our time together. We're rarely apart. So I think it made it special, and I thought it rang true. And it really, like as you said, the, the debriefing at night with each other. And sometimes the debriefs weren't more <laughs> as fun as the other times, but you still have to have those too. Well, Faith did an amazing job in that series. I don't need to tell you that. Is it true that she can actually back up a wagon? She got really good with that wagon. I tell you, that's where she spent most of her time was on the wagon. And we spent, I think, two and a half weeks at what they call, three weeks at what they call cowboy camp before we're... The actors come in, and that's when you work on your horse riding skills. Work on, I did work a lot on roping skills. And we all drove wagons, and we spent a lot of time driving wagons. And that's what Faith spent the most time doing, because that's what she did the most in the show, was, was drive the wagon. Yeah, that sounds, got, like, that sounds like yeah, fun. It's, it's, right? I, that's, <laughs> that's what we were telling them when we were doing it. It's like, people would pay to do this, and you guys are paying us. I had some moments like that during my career, too. It's like, oh, what? You're paying me to do this? This is awesome. Those are fun moments. Right on. <laughs> yeah. I bet. I'd like to spend a day in your career, for sure. <laughs> I have to ask you this. You wrote the song that plays during the credits for the film Free Solo by Jimmy Chin, yes. which is about Alex Honnold ascending El Capitan without any ropes. You were asked to write that song, and you came up with Gravity, which is just a terrific song. Tell us, our listeners, how you got involved in that. Agent called me. He said, you know, there's this great film. They're interested in you writing the end credits song for it. It's about this free solo mountain climber. And I, I'm like, first off, I don't know anything about that. I mean, I have no idea what that is and does. Secondly, I'm so scared of heights. I don't know that I could even have a clue of what he's going through or doing. I, don't, I just don't know. He said, just watch it and if, see if something comes to you. And when I watched it, I was blown away by it. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. It was like watching some sort of dr- um, big, bad drama movie. I mean, awesome drama movie. It was so well done. I just started taking notes and throughout the show. And then Gravity just kept becoming the theme in my mind as I was taking my notes for what to maybe write at the end of it. So I agreed to do it. Lori McKenna is my writing partner on that song. And we spent about four or five days on the phone, just sort of writing over the phone talking and singing and humming lines and sending each other little emails and texts until we put the song together. It actually turned out to be one of my favorite songs I've ever done. And it was just written for a movie because I've never written anything. Well, we did, Faith and I wrote the song for the end of The Shack as well, but it's hard to be doing a signed writing project, I guess is the way to say it. It worked out pretty good. I met you through the amazing Jennifer Brewstar, who was your father's caregiver and now runs the Tug McGraw Foundation. And through that, I've come to understand the impressive amount of philanthropy that you and Faith have done. And you've done much more than than just the Tug McGraw Foundation. What is driving you to give back so much? Well, first off, I feel very grateful and fortunate to have the life that we have, the family that we have, the opportunities that we've had, because at any given moment, something could have went the, a different way and it not worked out for us, just like it doesn't can in anyone's life. And I've always gone by that old saying, you know, to much is given, much is expected. And I believe that's the best part of our society and the best part of us as people is what we do for each other. Well, I certainly have appreciated the, what you've done for our troops, and it's well, not insignificant, but uh, we appreciate it. 
Absolutely. You know, throughout the whole discussion, we've talked a lot about risk and adrenaline. So what do you do to handle stress? You do anything special? Eat Doritos and lay on the couch. <laughs> Thing that's, to do a good, that's a good plan. Spearfishing. But, but we do it the old-fashioned way. It's you know, no tanks. It's all snorkel with an old-fashioned pole spear. I've done that for years, and I'll go out and spend six hours a day in the water. I have this watch that I wear that keeps up with my dives and my calorie burning. And then we've gone out and burned 4,000 calories in a day <laughs> swimming and diving. Yeah, I think my deepest kill is 53 feet with a hogfish, with a 25-pound hogfish that uh, chasing off shark. But it sounds stressful, but it's actually very de-stressing to be in the water and hunt fish and just sort of be in that world. It's probably a bit like being in space in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's not stressful to be in space. It's actually quite cool and very relaxing. So maybe some people might find it stressful, just like some people might find spear fishing stressful. But if you have your thing, that's the most important thing to know. I mean, some people Absolutely. I don't think realize what they need. That's the key is finding yourself. To know about themselves to relieve stress. And we teach our naval aviators to compartmentalize it, right? Put it in a little box in the corner, let it stay there while you're doing the difficult thing. And then when you actually need to confront it, open that box up and, and go for it. So one question we really like to ask towards the end of an interview, Tim, is do you have any special sort of rituals you have before you go out into a risky environment with, with stepping out on a stage under the bright lights before a concert? Is there any sort of last minute thing you do or is it just, okay, let's hitch up our pants and put on our cowboy hat and get out there? Well, the cowboy, putting on the cowboy hat is kind of like Superman's cape. I look at it that way. So when, so when I put that on, it sort of empowers me a little bit before a show. But um, I'm a pacer. And so I, what I try to do is I'll get into a sort of a locked in sort of my own space sort of zone, sort of that 10,000 yard stare and just pace a little bit for about five minutes before a show. And that gets me in the headspace that I need to get and helps me sort of find that character, I guess, as it were, to, to go out there and do it. And, and I can tell you, there's been plenty of nights where you feel good or you feel like you're not finding the groove, you're not finding that motion or that spot you need to get to. It never fails when you walk out there and you feel that energy from that crowd. It comes back to you instantly. Tim, I know our listeners are going to get a real kick out of this interview. It's been fantastic to be with you. We're very grateful that you were able to take the time and what is an incredibly busy schedule. We look forward to hearing about your tour and hopefully visiting you on that tour at some point. But again, thanks for being such an inspiration to people all around the world and in this country music venue and on film. Really appreciate yours and Faith's marriage and your work together in the entertainment industry. It's just been fantastic. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Good to see you, Sandy. And uh, Sandra, nice to meet you as well. I hope to get to see you out on the road sometime as well, too. Maybe I can get Sandy to come up and sing with me when he comes up. Oh, you don't want to do that, man. <laughs> Find a song where I can just play an A or something like that, and I'll stand behind you with all your immensely... You have some immensely talented musicians with you on tour. I got a chance to meet them one time, and they're incredible. So it's always nice to catch up with those guys as well. Absolutely. We'll look forward to seeing you. And my role in life is definitely music appreciator. That's my strength. Well, I'm happy for that. Looking at the x-rays, talking about the options. You've been listening to our interview with singer, songwriter, and actor Tim McGraw. Catch him on his current tour. You can find the dates at timmcgraw.com. Speaking of adrenaline, we're delighted to have Zoa Energy as this episode's sponsor. I'm Sandy Winnefeld. And I'm Sandra Magnus. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode. 
If you like our show, be sure to follow us and write a review and tell your friends about us. And if you have a suggestion for an adrenaline seeker we might want to interview, visit our website at theadrenalinezone.com. Said someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying.